Well, we're continuing our series uh, on discipleship. The, the title is Recovering Discipleship. And for the last two weeks, we've been learning about how Sunday worship, okay, Sunday worship is the primary place of discipleship in our lives. And I know that's very kind of countercultural because if you've grown up in the church, you're used to discipleship being like a class, a special course. It's for the spiritually elite and those people who have like this serious hunger and dedication for their faith. And so they'll do a class or they'll do a, a mentoring one-on-one with a pastor or a leader, or they'll go to Hawaii and do something called DTS or something. And so we're just familiar with discipleship being something extra than Sunday. And we feel like Sunday is just kind of general. Sunday sometimes can feel a little broad and watered down. Maybe it's for non-believers or baby Christians. Uh, But in the last two weeks, we've really tried to deconstruct, deconstruct that idea and said, no, actually, Sunday worship, as we gather as the body of Christ, this is the primary place of discipleship in our lives. As we gather each week as the people of God, God uses all of the elements of our worship to reform our hearts and to reshape our loves around his. We are reminded each week of the power and truth of God's word. We're reminded of the reality of our sin, our need for forgiveness, our need for the gospel. We're reminded again of the redeeming power of the cross. And we're also reminded of our call to follow him and our commission to be his kingdom citizens in our communities and to the ends of the earth. When we get that, when we experience that on a regular basis, brothers and sisters, that's discipleship. That is discipleship. But as powerful as Sunday worship is, the obvious truth is that an hour and a half, once a week, it's not enough. It's not enough to fully reshape our lives. It's not enough to combat our culture where it's not about loving God. It's about loving ourselves. Right? So much of our culture, so much of our habits, so much of our lives are, are self-centered and self-driven, and we become consumers from Monday to Saturday. And so it's not enough just to come in for like a, a quick rehab or a quick retweaking on Sunday to think that that's going to carry us throughout the week. You see, though communal worship is essential to discipleship, it's not the entirety of it. We need to learn to walk with God day by day, throughout the week. What we need to do is build out liturgies of grace and truth from Monday to Saturday. And so if Sunday is the primary day when God is recalibrating our hearts and and working out discipleship in our lives, the question we then need to ask is, how can we reinforce Sabbath worship in our lives? See, I, I think that's a great pattern for weekday discipleship, not to do something entirely different, not to do something entirely foreign, but to ask ourselves, okay, if, if what we do on Sunday is God's primary means of discipleship, how can we model or imitate and try to practice some of the valuable, life-giving, love-shaping things that we experience on Sunday, on Monday through Saturday? Does that, that make sense? This is a template. This is a model, and we can take bits and pieces of it and carry that into our workplace, carry that into our homes. And that's what today's sermon is about, discipleship in the home. Now, much of uh, today's message is going to really kind of focus to married couples and and families, Uh, but I I don't want to completely disregard and disengage those who are single and uh, those who are students. So please don't tune out, because I do believe that there are valuable things here for you as well. The truth is, just as God used Joseph in the Old Testament 
Joseph in the Bible is an instrument of redemption and a blessing for his brothers, for his parents, for his entire family. I believe that God wants to and can do that through you as well. So just because you're not a parent or just because you're not married doesn't mean that today's message has nothing for you. No, I I really do believe that God has um, a a desire for you to bring discipleship into your home. Uh, And so we're going to consider two core principles. I know there's three. I told you a curveball was coming one of these days. All right, two, two core principles to practicing discipleship in our homes. First, the first point is this. Home is where we learn to love. Home is where we learn to love. And the second is that learning to love is a lifelong process. Learning to love is a lifelong process. And at the end, I'll close with some practical applications and encouragement. Now, our primary text for us today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn there with me. And if you don't, you can just go to your phones or look up on the screen. And I'll be reading from the ESV. May God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Amen. The word of the Lord. This is one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. To the Jews, it was known as the Shema, and it was given by Moses as a summary of the Ten Commandments. Jesus teaches on it as well, and he describes it as the heart of the law and as the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, I love this passage because it not only comes with a command for us to love God, but it also comes with an application on what that looks like, on how we are to do that, and how to write this truth on our hearts. You see, throughout this series, we've been asking the question, How do we get the truth of God to move from our heads down into our hearts, right? That's such a big challenge. There's so many things that we know, and yet it's so hard to really see them applied in our hearts, to to have them become passions and loves and affections. And so we've been really asking that question, how do we become the kind of people who don't just know about God, but actually love him with our entire lives? And see, that's when true discipleship happens. And the answer God gives us is found in verses 7 to 9. Let's look at those verses once again. This is the how to apply it, how to write this command to love God on your heart. And this is what Moses tells. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do you see the connection that God is making for us and his people? The command is clear. Love God with all that you have, with your heart, right, with your soul, and with your mind. But God knows that that love needs to be cultivated, okay? That love needs to be curated on a daily basis. Just because you read it once doesn't mean that's automatically going to become the pattern of your life. 
Just because you hear it once or even write it once doesn't mean that that's going to automatically transform your heart. But this is how this love is written on our hearts, not as a one-time event, but as a daily habit in our lives. Teaching the word of God to our children in our homes, wherever we go, before we sleep, when we rise. And it's through these daily reminders that God shapes us and our families around his love. You see, the Jews, uh, they took verses 8 and 9 literally. They really did. And so they crafted what were known as phylacteries, phylacteries. And they would wear these daily. There would be a leather band that they would wrap around their arms. And then there would be this kind of like head brace or a headset that they would put on their heads and there would be a little box in front of it. And inside the box, you can kind of open it and there would be like the Shema there as a reminder. And so when the Bible says, yeah, make it as like on the frontlets of your eyes, they said, literally, let's, contra- uh, let's create a device that will go on our heads and be right in front of our eyes and a reminder for us to constantly love God with all our heart, soul, and might. Is there a picture that I shared, James? No, I didn't make it. Yeah, sorry about that. There's a picture, there's an image of a modern Orthodox Jew uh, wearing these phylacteries uh, as a daily reminder when he's praying and reading the word of God to kind of observe the Shema. Now, if you saw that, you'd be like, man, fashion police, that looks... That looks gnarly. That looks weird. And and we would probably kind of judge that person as being a little too radical. But it does show his great devotion. And it's a very literal attempt to obey the law. But I'm not going to advocate that we follow that literal example. You see, I don't want us to try and make up our own versions of Christian phylacteries by wearing bracelets, okay? Or wearing necklaces that have all these Bible verses on them, thinking that that is what real disciples do. If if, if I really want to follow Jesus, I'm going to have like t-shirts that have Bible verses on. I'm going to have it on my bumper sticker. and, And everywhere I go, just a reminder for me to love God, and that's going to be discipleship. I'm going to say, I'm not, we're not going to do that. I, I'm a pastor, and I don't have a Jesus fish on my car, probably so that, that they don't judge my driving or anything like that. The solution to discipleship in the home isn't to put more Bible verses in every room as a way to kind of Christianize our homes. I enjoy reading Bible verses in, in our restrooms, right? And the church is awesome, uh, but that's not really the solution for discipleship in our homes. You see, I actually believe the formative power of God's command in verses 7 to 9, right, where there's so much power, it's not found in the relics, okay? It's not found by building a leather strap and a head gadget to remind you to love God. And it's not even in the willingness to talk about God at home. That's a really, really good thing. But the formative power is found in the commitment to build liturgies of loving God throughout every day and every expression of their lives. Okay, that's the formative power where men and women in faith are willing to build a daily liturgy in their lives to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's where the law of God, the love of God, the gospel of God is written on our hearts. You see, church, habits are powerful. Habits are powerful. James Smith a professor at Calvin Seminary, he argues that habits aren't just something we do, okay? They're not just something we do. They do something to us, okay? Your habits do something to you. When you exercise every day, something beneficial happens to your health. When you eat junk food and veg out in front of the TV every day, the opposite happens, right? Not just something you do, but those, those habits do something to you. 
Something happens to us when we begin to end each day on our smartphones and on Instagram, or if we spend each day, morning and evening, in prayer and in God's word. Something happens to us when we practice those habits. When your reaction to stress in life is shopping, eating, or escaping on a vacation, that's a liturgy. That's a liturgy that you're building. When you are stressed, you're going to do something. And if it's shopping, eating, partying, or saying, I need to, I need to escape to a vacation, that, that's a liturgy you practice. And that becomes more and more dominant in your life. And what we need to do is take an inventory of our habits. We need to look at the liturgies of our lives and consider the formative and deformative effect it has on our lives and especially on your families, on your children. Because your habits not only show you what you love, okay, they also teach others what you love. They also teach others how to love, especially your children. You see, you need to be aware, parents, that you're not just raising children. You're not just raised. I, I talk to a lot of parents, and I'm like, how are you doing? How's the grind? How's that first season? And they kind of joke. They're like, we're just trying to keep our baby alive, right? We're just trying to keep our baby. And, and that makes a lot of sense. It's very honest, very true, okay? But that's not all there is to parenting. You're not just trying to keep your kids alive. You're not just raising children. You're actually raising lovers. You're raising lovers. You ch- see, your children are always learning to love. They love different toys. They love different shows. They love different, um, different hobbies. Right? They're always learning to love things, and they're learning to hate things. They're like, oh, I hate vegetables, right? or I don't like dogs, or I don't like what you know. Those are all things that they are developing in their hearts. And oftentimes, they end up loving what you as a parent love and even hating and despising the things that you despise. You see, my father loved soccer. He loved soccer, and so I ended up playing a lot of soccer as a youth, and I ended up loving it as well. My mother loved art, and she loved music, and I was never any good at art, but I picked up music, right? And I grew to love that as well. Now, one of the most powerful ways we shape our love, okay, we reflect our love, is actually through language. It's actually through language. And this is why Jewish parents were called to talk about loving the Lord constantly with their children, as you rise and as you sleep, as you go everywhere you go, talk about loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Language is so powerful. When I was a, a kid in elementary school growing up in the South, um, I encountered a bully by the name of Gene, by the name of Gene. Now, I know what y'all may be thinking. Gene was a boy, okay? G- G-E-N-E, okay? I wasn't bullied by a girl, right? Now, this is how um, Gene would bully me. He would come up to me, with his ruddy face and his red hair and his freckles, and he was like a foot taller than me, Um, but I was more popular than him. Um, (laughs) But he would come up to me with a lot of animosity. I still remember the sound of his voice. I still remember the look, and this is like fourth grade. Um, And he would call me a Jap. He'd say, you're a Jap. I hate Japs. And at first I was like, I'm Korean, right? I'm not a Jap. (laughs) But he would do that every day. And finally, one day I asked him, why do, you, why do you call me a Jap, right? I didn't even do anything wrong to you. What's your problem? And he said, it's because my, fa- my grandfather fought in World War II, and he fought against the Japanese, and he hated the Japanese. You see, Gene had no personal reason to hate me. 
He had never experienced any conflict with Asian kids, whether it's Japanese, Korean, or Chinese. But the reason why he hated me, the reason why he called me a chapel is because of his grandfather's racism. And that racism was passed on from generation to generation and from his grandfather's words, his language, his hate. He learned to express that hate towards me. Parents, the way that you speak has a tremendous impact on your children. How do you talk about people of other races? How do you talk about your in-laws, right? Or other family members? How do you talk about the church? Or how do you talk about politics? You see, your language, your words, your ideas, they all teach your children not only what to think, they also teach them how to feel, how to feel towards others. And we're talking about love. We're talking about hatred. As a pastor, I want my future children to love the church. I want them to love the church. I don't want them to despise the church. I don't want them to say, oh, church makes daddy go away, right? Or church stresses daddy out. Or church makes daddy angry. And I know that if I want to truly teach my children to love the church, I know that the most destructive thing I can do is constantly complain about the church and criticize the church, right? And gossip and slander about people within the church. I know that if I do that, I will be teaching my children to despise the church. Does that make sense? Regardless of how much ecclesiology, I could look at my kid and be like, the church is the bride of Jesus. You better love her. You better be devoted to her. Jesus died for her. But if I demonstrate the opposite with my words, with my actions, with my emotions, they're not going to learn to love the church. They're going to learn to hate the church. Because love and discipleship, it's not just taught, it's caught. And we catch it so much from our parents. We catch it so much from our siblings and our family members. Now, staying on the topic of language, I want to give one real, real relevant application for our parents to really consider in your homes. You see, if Sunday is the primary place of discipleship, okay, if Sunday is the primary place of discipleship for our lives, then, then we want to use it as a model for how we do discipleship at home. And in a powerful example of what we need to bring from Sunday worship into our home is the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon. Okay, The confession of sin and the assurance of pardon. I am sure that there are a lot of parents here who try to read the Bible with their children. Okay, I believe that. I, I'm sure there are plenty of parents who love to read the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you're a parent looking for a great Bible to have for your kids, pick up the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, my pastor friends who read it with their children, they weep. They weep, and they're like, why are you crying, Daddy? And they're like, because the gospel is so... Be-. Anyway, so it's, it, it's, it's, it's awesome. And so I, I know that there are many parents here who read the scriptures with their children. That's good. I know there's even more parents who try to listen to Christian worship songs with their children, especially during VBS, right? Uh, The children's department, they give you that CD, and then it's on loop for a month, and you're like brainwashed, and you're like, oh my gosh. Um, but, But that's good, you know, so we're bringing singing and worship, right, into our homes, into our cars. I know all of you parents, you pray regularly for your children, right? You pray, you may not pray for yourself, but you pray for your children, right? But what I believe is lacking is a confession of sin. What I believe is lacking is this assurance of grace and real forgiveness and reconciliation in our families. Charles Spurgeon, uh, he has a witty, 
yet sobering quotes for us to consider. He writes this. He says, begin early to teach, for children begin early to sin, right? Really good, right? Begin early to teach, because children begin early to sin. Um, Do you know one of the best ways to bring the gospel into your home is this. It's by talking about sin. And not just their sins, but parents, yours as well. Have you ever looked at your children and confessed your sins against them? Have you said, I'm so sorry that daddy broke his promise. I said I would be home to spend time with you. We were going to go watch a movie or we were going to go play catch, but, but, but I didn't make it. Friends, that's not just a mistake. That's, that's sin because you broke your promise. You broke your word. Have you ever confessed your sins to your children when you were short-tempered? When you were angry, not, not because they deserved it, but because you forgot character. You lost your temper and you had it out in an unjust, wrathful way against your children. That's sin. And have you confessed that sin against your children? You see, most of us as parents, especially Asian parents, we're too, we're too prideful to do that. Maybe we'll say, oh, yeah, 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 mommy and daddy, we made a mistake, right? We might apologize but we don't go to the depth of confessing our sins to our children. But your children need to hear this. They need to know that, yes, their parents, as much as they adore you, as much as they look up to you, that their parents are sinners in need of grace. Sinners who have been redeemed, not because they make enough money, not because they have more degrees, not because they're so strong and capable, but they have been redeemed by the bloodshed work of Jesus. You have an opportunity to show them the saving power of the gospel as you confess your sins to your children and ask for them and ask for their forgiveness and then explain that true forgiveness comes from Jesus Christ as well. See, that's, that's bringing the gospel into our homes. That's bringing grace into our homes. And here's the amazing thing. When you teach your children, not just to apologize for hitting their sibling, but realize that that is sin, then you also have an opportunity to assure them of pardon. You have the opportunity to say that, yes, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you and purify you of all unrighteousness. You have the opportunity as they're weeping and crying because they're sorry. And they're weeping and crying because they realize that they have sinned, not just against their sibling, not just against you, but against God. You can assure them in Jesus Christ, they are forgiven, that they are accepted, that they are loved, and they are reconciled. And so even in those moments of parental, like parental discipline, you can experience and lead them to reconciliation, right? That yes, God's not angry with them, that he loves them and he's forgiven them. And that in that same way, you're not angry with them either, right? And you have forgiven them and you can restore them. That is a gospel rhythm. That is a gospel liturgy. So many of our families, so many of our families desperately need. Would you consider that, parents? What are you teaching your children to love? What are you teaching your children to hate? How are you curating their hearts? You see, I love that word curating. Like it's, it's really kind of hip now. They like to talk about like curating spaces for coffee shops, curating interior design for homes. And when they talk about that, they're saying a designer has intentionally selected pieces of furniture 
right? Different lighting fixtures, right? Paintings and, and, and artwork on the wall that someone has intentionally brought these things into a home, into a space with a purpose. Parents, I know that so many of you feel like you're just on survival mode, treading water because you're so tired, so stressed, so stretched thinly. But I want to encourage you today. I want to invite you into this, this, this um, yeah, this, this responsibility that God has given you to curate the love Right, the love of your children, to intentionally bring things in, whether it's scripture reading, whether it's gratitude, right? whether it's confession of sin, whether it's forgiveness and reconciliation, whether it's service and stewardship, to intentionally curate the loves of your children to go towards God and to go towards others. That's stewardship. That's, that's gospel parenting. This is why God commanded Israel, teach your children to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind by making it a constant habit, a daily liturgy in your lives. The second point of today's message is this. Learning to love, it's a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process. Paul Tripp, he wrote a book on gospel-centered parenting, and I want to commend it to the parents. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I feel like I'm like selling books or something like that, uh, but I'm not. This is, uh, this is the book. It says Parenting. It's by Paul Tripp. It's beautiful. It really is beautiful. And so if you're a parent and you want to just learn more about what it means to raise your children, discipline your children, love your children in Christ and in the gospel, uh, it's, it's fantastic. I think it's like, yeah. Cover says $22.99, but I'm sure Amazon's cheaper. Um, anyways, but, but he wrote a book, and in the book he had a chapter describing the importance of seeing parenting as a process. Parenting is a process, and it lines up perfectly with one of our main ideas throughout this discipleship series, that that. Discipleship is a direction and not a destination. I've been saying that over and over again, and he kind of uh, you know, has his own version. He says, parenting is not an event, it's a process. This is what he says in uh, one of the great statements he says. Um, he says, we want parenting to be a series of events rather than a lifelong process. But here's what parenting is. It's unfinished people being used by God as agents of transformation in the lives of unfinished What he means by this is that we need to understand that God, in his sovereign timing, he has a lifelong process of making us, of making our children, of making our parents, of making our siblings more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And this is a real paradigm shift because so many many parents see the development of their children as their own work and responsibility. Okay. You see it as your own work. It's your own responsibility. And, and, and that responsibility is burdensome. Right? And so you're trying to mature and grow these kids, and you want to see development. And see, parents get frustrated when they see their kids struggling with the, with the same things over and over again, constantly fighting with their siblings. Right? It happened last week. We had a really good talk. I disciplined them in grace, in the gospel. They hugged it out. And, and why can't they just not fight ever again? But here they are the next day. They're doing it over and over again. And that gets frustrating. Children are always breaking family rules. And once you get teenagers, they're constantly in rebellion. And for many parents, it feels like an endless cycle. You want to see them change, grow, and mature, but you want it like on your timeline. You want it sooner, and you want it quicker. And we do the same thing with our siblings. We do the same thing with our parents. Man, as we get older, we really start judging our parents. 
And you're like, what is wrong with you? Why are you so immature? Why are you so childish? Why can't you forgive that person? Why can't you be more fiscally responsible and all these things? So there's a really interesting inversion that goes on. Like when you're a parent with teenagers, you judge them like crazy. And then as you get older and you see your parents aging, uh, we start judging them back. And so we're just all, we're just all judgmental sinners. Anyways, um, and what we don't realize is that all of us, from adults to children, we are all in process. We're all in process, and it's all in God's timing, his sovereign timing. We are growing according to God's timeline. And that's so important when it comes to discipleship in the home, because there might be seasons when you are growing really fast. Maybe you're a wife, and you are just in a time of spiritual renewal, and you're like, my husband is such a sluggard. My husband doesn't take his faith seriously. He's not leading the home, and there's frustration there. There needs to be grace to understand that God is growing all of us according to his timing, not ours. In seminary, I lived with three other brothers uh, who were all uh, in seminary together, and we all shared similar testimonies. Two of us were sons of pastors. All of us grew up in the church, and all of us spent our adolescence in utter rebellion. The kind of rebellion where if you looked at our, our lives, you'd have judged our parents. I mean, like, your parents are so bad. Dude. Your parents are, 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 are reckless and, and terrible at raising boys. Our stories included drug use. One of my roommates, he lived with a drug dealer while in college. Our stories included partying, sneaking out. We got suspended from school. Right, one of my, my brothers, he got expelled like two or three times. He, like, we're driving around your Belinda. He's like, yeah, I went to that school, and I went to that school, and I went to, we're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and and, and we, fought, we fought with our parents. We made our mothers cry. We, we broke their hearts. There's a common theme, though, among each of us. And the theme was this. Even though there was so much destructiveness in our lives, so much sin and rebellion in our adolescence. We all knew we were loved by our parents. And our parents never gave up on us. Okay? We all knew we were loved by our parents. And our parents never gave up on us. And just like that prodigal son who came to his senses while eating with the slop of pigs, that son knew where home was. He came to a census and he knew if he just went home, he would be welcomed by his father with grace and love. So he came to a census and he went home. He knew where home was. That was a common thread for all of us. You see, brothers and sisters, discipleship is both an event and a process. And I thank God that my parents never gave up on me. I thank God that they allowed me. I mean, not allowed me, but yeah, they weren't ruined by my wandering in sin, that they were steadfast in faith, right? They were long-suffering in love over me. And that was transformative. That was redemptive. See, discipleship is both an event and a process. You see, the great event of discipleship, that's conversion. It's conversion when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and we receive it in faith. That's a one-time, life-transforming event, okay? But discipleship is also a process. And the great process of discipleship, it's a theological term. It's called progressive sanctification. 
And this is where God, in his grace, by his spirit, is making us more and more like Jesus Christ, according to his timing. Sometimes it's seasons of great growth, tremendous growth. Other times it's slow, and you feel like your love has gone stale. There's times when you might feel like you're backsliding, but in all of it, God is sovereignly working to sanctify you and make you more like Jesus Christ his beloved son. The apostle Paul, he reminds us of this in Romans 5, uh, 1 to 5. Uh, The words are going to go up on the screen there. This is what Paul writes. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. I hope you see those two great events, that event and the work of process and progress in the Christian life. Through the bloodshed work of Jesus, we are forgiven of our sins, forgiven of our sins, and have peace with God. We have a new identity in Jesus, and we have access to God as his sons and daughters, and this is the beginning of the Christian life. And once we are justified, that's when sanctification begins. Once we are justified, that's when God begins to grow us. This is when the process, this lifelong journey, this directional growth of discipleship begins. This is what Paul describes in verses three to five where God is producing character, Christ-like character in us. How does he do this? He does this by sustaining us through suffering. He does this by continually pouring his love into us through the Holy Spirit. You see, the Apostle Apostle John, in his letters, he, he writes beautifully. He says, we love because God first loved us. This whole series is about how do we become better, deeper, right? more committed, affectionate, passionate lovers of God. Brothers and sisters, it's not through more programs. It's not through our willpower and our resolve. We become greater lovers of God as we experience more of his love being poured into our hearts. We love because he first loved us. And so I want to give a word of encouragement. Yes, learning to love, it is a lifelong process. God is sovereign over these things. And the promise that we have is he is working that out in our lives. So if you're here struggling with your parents, if you're struggling with your siblings, or if you're struggling with your children, what you are called to do today is to trust that God has a plan and a process for them. Right? Uh, I, I think on some levels that sounds kind of basic, but when I was reading this and meditating upon it, I just, I found that to be so profound, right? That it's not about me trying to work out more holiness in my wife and like, like dictate those terms for her. Parents, it's not about you trying to like dictate spiritual growth and get them to memorize more verses and X, Y, and Z over your kids, but it's for you to realize God has a spiritual plan and a process for your children, for your spouses, for your families, for you to embrace that, for for us to delight in that, to realize that the sanctification of the ones we love, it's not all up to us. You and I, we don't have to bear that burden on our shoulders. That's the work of God. 
in their lives. He has a plan, and he's working that out. You see, you and I, we may struggle with their sins. We may struggle with their source, uh, shortcomings. We may grieve over their weakness and the slowness of their maturity and growth. But we are called today to hope in the work of God and to receive the promise that God is working in them. Okay? Are you in a season of just being really judgmental over your spouse? Right? Would you just pause and would you just release that and say, God, um, help me not to be such a plank eye. Right. Help me not to be so critical, so judgmental, or help me not to be so insecure about my lack of spirituality. But help me to realize that, God, you are working your will. You're, you're, you're going to grow my life. You're going to grow my wife. You're going to grow my children and my siblings, my family, my parents, according to your timeline and your hand, that we will take seriously the promise that he who began a work and you, and us, will be faithful to complete it. I know I've spoken mostly to the parents and families here today, but I want to close with a final word of encouragement to our collegians and singles, okay? Collegians and singles. Um, you can bring discipleship into your homes as well. Okay? You really can. And the best way for you to do this is not to try and force your families to come to church with you, Right? Not to try and like guilt trip your brother or sister to come back to church or do a family worship, uh, but it's, it's by you literally bringing your discipleship into the home. Are you doing that? Okay. Some of you are so kind to your friends. So kind to your friends. You're so loving and gracious, right? Uh, to people in your small group, people that you serve alongside with. There's so much Christ-like character there. And then when you get home, you're so rude to your parents. You're so indifferent towards your siblings. Okay, That's not bringing discipleship into your home. That's not bringing the gospel into your home. Would you reconsider how it is you are demonstrating love, the love of Jesus to your family members? Some of you are such servants at home. You come here early in the morning to set up tables, to set up chairs, to set up water and, and snacks and all of that. And then at home, you will not even help your mothers with the dishes. You will not clean up. You will not serve your family at all. And there's a disconnect. And the first people to see that is your family, right? They'll see you saying, oh, I, I'm going to go out on a mission trip. Oh, I'm going to go to a retreat or I'm volunteering and I can't be there for this family event or I can't be here for this family dinner because I have, I have church and I have ministry. And, and, and they see that and they're like, oh, that's good for you. I'm glad you're, you're doing well spiritually. But they also see the disconnect. They'll say, where is Jesus? Where's the character of Christ? Here in the home. And that hurts them. That causes them to judge you and judge the church and to question the authenticity, the validity of Jesus' work in your lives. And I just want to challenge you on this. Brothers and sisters, bring your discipleship into your home. And I, and I promise you that when your family members see it, they, 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 they will be challenged. When your parents start to see your character, your lifestyle, your habits, your liturgies, being transformed, man, they, they will begin to wonder, man, maybe Jesus is real. Maybe the gospel is true, right? 
It's changed my brother. It's transformed my child. And that is the aroma of Jesus that we want to bring into our homes. I believe that that is where gospel witness is so powerful when we bring our discipleship into our homes. Brothers and sisters, would we just continue to delight ourselves in the Lord's day worship? Would we continue to be fed by God's word, encouraged by this fellowship, reminded of our sin and the grace that Jesus offers us? But may that journey, may that liturgy, may that worship not end here. May we carry that into the week, into our homes, all for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who cares not just for us as individuals. You are a God who cares for us as households. You care for our families. You care for our children. And we want to entrust all things into your hands. We thank you that you are a God who is sovereign. Thank you that you are a God who is mighty to hold all things in your hands and to be able to redeem and renew according to your time by the power of Jesus. Lord, help us. Help us to really practice these cross-centered liturgies in our lives. Teach us what it means to humble ourselves before one another, to confess our sins, and to point our children, to point our, fa- point our families to Jesus Christ as the one who has paid for our sins in full by his bloodshed work on the cross. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.